Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode five of a 20 episode series all about Antarctica. There will be quite a few episodes in the next week, but then after that, they'll come out every Thursday until we run out, basically. Um, so today's episode features Dr. Carrie Nichols. I found Carrie on Twitter and only after the fact did I figure out she is also part of Homeward Bound. So that's a fun random connection and I always love those. So Homeward Bound, if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to me ramble about it, it's a leadership training program for women in STEM. So um, Carrie is HB3 and I'm HB5, so that's the third and the fifth cohorts respectively. So anyway, Carrie is a professor at California State University in Northridge, working with marine ecosystems, kelp forest, and marine protected areas. And today in this episode, Carrie tells me about her first trip to Antarctica on an NSF project, about Homeward Bound, about scuba diving and her experiences with the R World Underwater Program, about her love of the Pacific Ocean, and how she ended up as a scientist. So we cover a lot of ground in this episode, as we tend to do. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so all you said was that you went with HB3, but that also you went with the NSF project, but what was the NSF project? So NSF used to run a program called the Antarctic, Antarctic Training Program in Biology or Antarctic Biology Training Program. Um, and it was a program where they would take early career people down there. And the idea was that, you know, it's hard to get started doing work. The idea was that they would take early career scientists down, show them, you know, what's possible down there with the idea that then they would try to write grants and then maybe be more successful because it's hard to write a grant to go there if you don't, if you haven't been there before, you don't really know what's possible. Um, so I, yeah, so I applied to the program once and didn't get in. Um, when I was a graduate student, I remember my lab mate got in and I didn't, and I was like really upset about it. Cause I, I've been wanting to go to Antarctica for, uh, for a very long time. And, um, I think the earliest when I was like, I like really want to go, um, like I want this to be something I do eventually was in 2003. And I had this, um, scuba diving scholarship where I, it's through this organization called the Our World Underwater Scholarship Society. And basically they sponsor somebody from North America, somebody from Europe and somebody from Australasia to like travel the world, kind of trying out different like scuba diving related careers and figuring out like what you want to do with your life, um, which is great. Um, and such a privilege to be able to like have a year to really think about that and explore different opportunities. Um, and it's, they have the, these scholarships. So the one that I had was the North American Rolex scholarship and it's funded by Rolex. Um, and so, yeah, I met several people through that year who had done work in, in Antarctica and who had been diving in Antarctica. And I, I just, yeah, I just kind of became obsessed and like really wanted to go, but then figuring out like, how the heck do you get down there? Um, and there weren't any opportunities during that year. Like a lot of the other people that have had the scholarship, especially recently have like gotten to go down. Um, but that wasn't super common when I was, when I had it. Uh, yeah. And so then, you know, it wasn't until like 13 years later that I finally had the opportunity to go. So I, you know, applied for the program again. And that time I was, and I was a brand new assistant professor when I applied 
And I was kind of at like the older end of people that they wanted to participate in the program. Um, and it was this funny thing that happened where like we applied and then they said, well, okay, it turns out we can't really run the program, but they're gonna let us run the program if we have it a different time of year and we go to a different station. So normally the program would happen in McMurdo. So they changed it to being at Palmer and it was during winter instead of during summer when it normally, when the program would normally run. Um, but that worked out great for me because it was during, you know, my, you know, during North, uh, Northern Hemisphere summer. So I wasn't teaching. So that was like, great. I had the whole summer available. Um, and it meant that we would go by ship to Palmer and then, you know, be up. So we went by ship. Um, it was two weeks to get down there. Um, can't remember if it was four, I think it was six weeks at station and then two weeks going back. And I have a background that's like in my degree is in ecology, but I do oceanographic work as well. And so it also seemed like so awesome to be able to be on the ship and then to like be at Palmer, which it just, I don't know, it's like such a smaller station. The max capacity is 44 as opposed to like McMurdo max capacity is like 1200 or something. Um, and I've spent a lot of time on like small isolated research stations. So I was like, that's my jam. Like those are, that's where my weirdos are. Like I love, I don't know. There's just something about those kinds of opportunities that I just like really love the opera, like where you're just like so immersed in what you're doing. And um, not that that wouldn't have been true at McMurdo, but like, I don't know, there's something about that small community that, that I just think can be super great. And, you know, it's not for everybody. That's, that's also true. Um, so we, it was great because they didn't tell us like, like they kind of gave us lanes about, you know, okay, this is the type of equipment we're going to have down there. And then they let us just kind of come up with our own ideas and things that we wanted to work on. And we worked in, you know, groups and got to collaborate on different things. So I got involved in a few different projects down there. Like, um, one of the other students that was down there, we both were really into zooplankton. Um, but it kept working out where like there was maybe too much ice to be able to take the small boats out, but like the ice wasn't solid enough to be able to just like walk out and take samples. So we were kind of limited to in like what we could, what data we could collect. So, um, but you know, there's this intake coming um, of water, like coming into their Aquarius system. So we just were like, well, can't do plankton toes out in the harbor. So like, let's just use the intake pipes. And so we would swap out the nets um, like before sunrise and then um, before like right around sunset every day for like the whole time that we were there. Um, and just look at the plankton community and like, who's there? I don't know. Um, we saw larvae, we saw all sorts of really fun things. And I worked with um, this uh, newly minted PhD, Dr. Matt Sasaki, who's at University of Connecticut. Um, we just were like total zooplankton nerds together and we didn't know what anything was called and it's hard to find good guides for zooplankton down there i mean there's like some papers but it was just like you know there's there's no quick and easy way to just be like what is this what is this copepod species so we started giving them names 
Um, so, and we would like kind of take turns looking at the microscope and then like calling off what we'd see and the other person would write it down. And then the next time we'd, you know, switch tasks. So we gave them names like feather hands or shoulder pads, um, just like, but they, we were consistent and we would like take pictures of them and like we have it all cataloged. Um, still so yeah it was really interesting and we saw these shifts in the zooplankton community over time which we're pretty sure was related to changes in the ice conditions um because every day i would go up to and i would like stand on the same place on the like where the dorms were and i would take a picture like looking out of the little like harbor bay thing um, by palmer station and so like for the first chunk of our time series it was like ice and then the second, like, there was like another chunk of our time series where it was open water and was like pretty rough. And then a third chunk that was the ice came back and there were pretty distinct communities like during those time periods. Um, so that was pretty fun. And then I got to do like a little bit of krill work. Um, and, and then we also went on a couple research cruises like as a class where we took the, um, we were on the, the Gould was the ship that we were on. And so it took us um, a couple times while we were at Palmer Station to just do like some research cruises. And yeah, it was awesome. I had such a great time. And I, because it was winter, it was only like three to four hours of daylight a day. Um, but it was like prolonged like sunrise sunset colors. So it was just gorgeous. Like the colors were incredible. You know, those like pinks and purples and, um, yeah, it was awesome. And, cool. yeah. I always feel like sunrise and sunset should be longer. Apparently, solution is to go to Antarctica in the winter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Um, how, I have a question. When you said like about the intake pipes, I was picturing like a tiny little pipe, like water faucet size. Is was it like that, or was it just like a? I don't really know. What well, they probably have a bigger pipe that's like out in the, you know, the source where they're grabbing it from, but then it, you know, comes up shore and then it's diverted in the aquaria, like through various, you know, PVC architecture, whatever, and then to the individual tanks. And so we just like hung a net off of it. Um, I think we had a flow meter on it too, to try to be a little bit more quantitative about the whole thing. Um, but the funny thing was like, so twice a day, we'd like take the net off, like wash out the pot end, like put it back, like stick the net back on. And every day I would like not even think about like, maybe wear some gloves, maybe don't stick your hand in the minus two degrees seawater. And then I'd be like, ah, oh, like burning hands. Like I'd think like, oh, I'm just doing it really quick. It'll be fine. And then, you know, after about a week, it's like, why are my hands chapped? Oh, I don't know, minus two degrees seawater. That's funny because I probably wouldn't think about it either at first. Like, oh, I'm, you know, I don't I assume it's inside. I don't know. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's like, inside. But it's like, like cold ocean water. water. Yeah, yeah. It it was That's very funny. Cold. It was very cold. Yeah. Stories are true. It's cold. <laughs> That's so cool. So I didn't know that the um, first of all, I didn't know McMurdo had a max capacity of twelve hundred people because that's a lot of people. It's like and a, I did. It's been described as like a mining town. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that Palmer was only like in the 40s because that's a vast difference. Yes. Yeah. And during wintertime, it's mostly the crew that's just like keeping the station going. 
So normally during winter, they're like 20 people. Um, so yeah, so okay. So normally during winter, it's like skeleton crew, just trying to keep things going. And then there'll be like one science team. So there was a science team there. Um, and, but there were only two or three of them, I think. And then we show up. A lot of the people that are there in winter, they're wintering over. They like, they don't like people. They want to be there when there's not a lot of people. Then this crew of like 22 show up and we're all like, oh my gosh, I'm in Antarctica. Like, I'm so excited. And we double the population at the station. And, um, you know, some people really liked our infusion of energy. They were grateful that we were there because they'd already been there for a, for a little while, like before we got there, that crew, like working together. So there were some people that liked that infusion of energy. There were other people that I think really were not um, happy we were there because that wasn't what they signed up for. Um, yeah, so that was interesting, but we did arrive with the fresh food. So, you know, I think that that was helpful for our cause, except that when we, left we had eaten all the fresh food um because there were lots of us um and yeah and so that was i'm trying to remember if that's when game of thrones there was some season at that time it, it, it was not the whole like show was over but we were there like as there was like some season was ending but they would arrange to like download the episodes and then show them. There's like a room that has like movie theater style seats, like big recliner things. Um, so they were used to like watching it, you know, once a week and it was a whole thing. And then we went on a research cruise. So we asked them if they could wait to watch the episode until we got back. And whoa boy, you would have thought we'd asked them to like, I don't know, do something that was a way bigger deal than that. And when we got back from the cruise and then we go to like watch this show and like some of the, some of the crew had like made little signs that said like reserved like on the seats where they wanted to sit so that, you know, like none of us would sit there. And they say it was a joke, but you know, it goes a little, uh, little give and take. I mean, I could see that if you were, if you were there to kind of be alone and then you know, all these people show up that that would be kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's probably like a lot all at once. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're in a routine and then now there's suddenly 20 more people. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's where did y'all leave from? You said it took two weeks to get there. We left from um, uh, Punta Arenas in Chile. Um, and we, because when I went to, when I went with the Homeward Bound trip, we were down there much quicker, but I think because we were also like doing some science on the way down. Um, I mean, I think the homeward bound trip started probably more north of Palmer anyways. But yeah, I, we were at sea for quite a bit. I was just curious. Everybody goes down there from different access points. I mean, there's only yeah. a finite amount of points, but um, yeah. I talked to somebody the other day who was leaving from California and then they were going down to Chile to refill and then going there and they had to go like through all these quarantine procedures and stuff like she I talked to her the day before they left oh yeah and I think because they've been they've been in, stuck in um Humboldt if it's the same was it the Gould or the Palmer it was the Palmer yeah. yeah I think that they've been up in Humboldt 
think yeah so the um when i went the there's always somebody i can't remember the official title of the person but they they're basically the liaison between the ship's crew and the scientists and the people in that position are so interesting and like such great people and our um our person, his name is Al Hickey, and I'm pretty sure that he's on the Palmer right now. And he splits his time between being like the logistics person for these trips and then um, working with Doctors Without Borders. Oh. Just, I mean, the people that end up in Antarctica working there are just fascinating people. Like the cooks that we had, like the food is amazing. The chefs are incredible and they're just like really awesome people. Uh, yeah, that's what everybody has said so far. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And someone else told me that, like, they love not having to think about food. And I was like, I would love that. I would love to just show up and someone feed me. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. So you said your background is in um, oceanographic stuff. Can you tell me more about that, maybe? And, like, I don't know, if do you, did you work on anything of those projects you worked on in Antarctica after? Yeah, my background's, I have a PhD in ecology, I mean marine ecology, but in an ecology program from UC Davis. And my PhD work was all about looking at currents close to shore. I was really interested in larval transport and thinking about population connectivity and how populations are connected along a shoreline and what that means for like marine protected areas. Um, and I've just always been, even since undergrad, I double majored in biology and earth science because I'm just really interested at the interface between like the fluid environment and, um, and organisms. And so if I felt like there's in a lot of work on um, larvae and thinking about population connectivity, there wasn't a lot of information about like currents really close to shore, but obviously they would like have a big impact because that's like larvae start and end their lives there. Um, so I've always, so I've kind of had a thread of doing um, oceanographic work and, and some zooplankton stuff. Um, and then I've done, I work on a lot of different things. I've done work looking at um, marine protected areas and using monitoring data and population models to try to evaluate marine protected areas and um, thinking about adaptive management. Like if you don't know how a population should respond to a marine protected area, you can't really evaluate how it responded if you don't have an expectation of what it was supposed to do like did it work did it not work i don't know and then lately i've been doing a lot of work looking at kelp forests and if they can mitigate ocean acidification through like changing the physics and the chemistry of the water um so yeah lots of like different things but interdisciplinary work and i still kind of always like keep my toe in zooplankton stuff and i was really hoping to go back to antarctica and i I wanted to publish the stuff that we did, um, the time series stuff, but we didn't get a lot of encouragement from the people who were running the program to like follow up on it. And I think once we got back to and kind of started looking into the literature more, it felt like, yeah, I don't know if we can publish it because we don't have species IDs. And I think we could figure it out if we um, maybe sent our pictures to somebody and like got some feedback on what, you know, the different species were. But, you know, the person that I was doing um, that project with, you know, was working on his PhD, like I was a brand new professor. So it just, and I ended up switching jobs in the middle of all of this. Like in 2017, I came to where I am now at Cal State Northridge. 
So it just kind of didn't happen. And then I had a meeting with um, one of the people who was in charge of the program, but who hadn't actually like been there with us. And they really discouraged me from trying to go back. And I wish that I had just said, screw you, I'm gonna try to go anyways. But I think that happening amidst like transitioning to a new job. And I also did get some projects funded to work in California. It just kind of like went down on the list of things to think about and work on. And I really do want to do science that has conservation implications. And I feel like a lot of the ideas I was coming up with to do work in Antarctica was kind of like just to do work in Antarctica and not necessarily like big picture stuff, but I don't know that you can really go down there and do your first project and have it be this like, I'm gonna, I don't know, save a thing or like, I mean, you have to start somewhere, but um, I, it's hard because the whole point of that program was to try to get people to go back and be successful at writing grants. But I can honestly say that like, it kind of did the opposite for me, like because of this conversation I had with the person who was in charge of it. So as if research wasn't tough enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's a hard place to break into because it's a lot of people who have been working down there for a long time or, you know, maybe their PI was working down there. So it's yeah, I think it's hard for people to figure out how to insert themselves um, into that already very well established network. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, that's certainly true in places that aren't Antarctica as well. And that's, you know, there's even fewer people that work down there and it's so much harder to get to that it seems like it would just be so much more complicated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was actually like, there was a, uh, the grad students in my um, program had invited uh, someone to talk to them today who does work in Antarctica and works for NSF. Mm -hmm. And she made some comment about like, oh, okay, if you want to go to Antarctica, honestly, like the, the easiest way to go is to find somebody that already works there and try to go with their project, like be their graduate student or something. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, here you go. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yes, that doesn't leave many options, really. I mean, there's a finite number of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's true here on like, you know, Louisiana coast, there's however many professors doing their work here and I wouldn't say I mean I don't know because I'm not in academics but I wouldn't say it's necessarily like exclusionary but you know there's only so many people with money to do research that are working yeah there, so yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's much easier to get to you just drive there <laughs> yeah <laughs> I get it that like people get funding for a project, they get data, then that leads to like another project. Like I can see how you, you know, build, it's like with any place, you know, you start working on a question and then that gives you more questions. And um, so I, I understand how it happens. Yeah, totally. There's just, you know, it can only fit so many people there doing yeah. research at one time, you know, yeah. the capacity limit really, it seems like maybe more than, that might be the first thing, I guess. Yeah. Have you always been drawn to ocean things? Uh, I find that a lot of people I talk to have been drawn to the ocean from a young age. <laughs> so I'm just curious if that's true for you. I was drawn to the ocean from a young age, but not, I wasn't the kid that always thought they would be a marine biologist, like at all. I never thought I'd become a scientist. Um, my, I'm a, my parents didn't go to college. Um, I 
I loved the ocean. I don't know why. I just felt this connection to it. And so I would paint waves in art class. And I was really into learning how to surf at one point, like in high school, I was like obsessed with learning how to surf. And I would like get these surfer magazines and I don't know, paint pictures from them. And I grew up in San Diego. So um, I did go to the ocean a lot. And then I went to college, not knowing at all what I was doing. And my high school had, had a really terrible science program. Um, from my perspective, it did not inspire me to become a scientist. It was like, how do I take the least number of classes as possible? And then I got to college and I like, I liked math, but I also liked thought, oh, political science or math. And I'm, you know, taking classes. And then uh, like my, I remember the graduate assistant, you know, who ran the discussion section because I went to a big college. Um, like wouldn't make eye contact with us during um, our discussion sessions. And I'm like, maybe math's not for me. And I just, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, but I had to fulfill breadth requirements. And so there were, there were classes that were kind of like about oceans. So there was one that fulfilled probably like a physical science requirement that was um, like an intro to oceans. So I took that and I was like, oh, oh, this is like a job somebody has to like think about the ocean. And then I took a geography class on islands and oceans and that was awesome. And then, and then I just started figuring out like, okay, what other classes are, are options? And then I just totally changed tracks. Yeah, I just had no idea. I just, I had no idea this was like a job somebody had. Yeah, that was, I mean, I was the same, but not with oceans, because I don't really live near one, but, yeah. um, but with like wildlife, because that's where my background is in, and yeah. I was like, at some point in high school, I was like, oh, I want to work outdoors, and then I went to like a high school senior recruiting day here at LSU, and that's where I figured out that wildlife was the name for the thing I wanted to do, and I was yeah. like, I didn't know that was actually a job. Um, yeah. But, I think fascinating to hear how you didn't like intend to be a scientist and then figured out like, oh wait, this is a job? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I'm really lucky that no one really discouraged me along the way. And that I, and that I felt that that was even an option because I think mm -hmm. there's so many stories of people who like got scared of science because of some, you know, bad experience they had. Whereas I was just like, nah. <laughs> Yeah, you hadn't been sold on it yet, but you hadn't walked away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, it was sort of the the part where like my family tried to talk me out of it when I told them what I was going to major in. I'm like, well, you'll never make any money. I'm like, that's not the point here. Right. I was like, knowing like, I mean, I will make a paycheck and I will figure it out, you know, but, you know, I, and I did, I figured it out. Yeah, yeah. They were coming from a place of, you know, just wanting to look out for me. And I get that, but best intent. Yeah. But I want to go study birds. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. I've talked to quite a few people who do like marine related things, but a lot of them were drawn to the ocean from a young age. Uh, even though they didn't maybe live near the ocean, they were just fascinated from one thing or another. And it, with the way you're describing the ocean to you is like sort of in the background, like kind of subconsciously, it sounded like. And that's how the Mississippi River is for me. Like I grew up right near it and I still live like two miles from it. And I just feel like this river has sort of just like, you know, been sort of directing my whole life. 
yeah. um, and built all of the wetlands that I now study in, which is what feels like home to me. And so that's like my, my ocean, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, you know, it's, it turns out like just in talk, having some conversations with my dad recently, um, like my dad grew up going to the ocean a lot. He grew up in San Diego, um, grew up fishing. My grandpa had a, this fishing boat and he would make my dad drive them out all night long so that my grandpa could sleep. And then they could like, you know, then my grandpa would wake up and fish in the morning once they were like offshore enough, like to get tuna or whatever that they were after. So that was like my dad's experience when he was pretty young. And then it turns out that my, I think it was like my grandpa's grandpa, like moved from Europe, like to Hawaii. And I mean, I think that there is this like deep connection to the ocean that has been in my family, but I didn't really know about it. And so I don't know. I kind of like to think that maybe it's, it's just part of me. That's sort of how I feel about the Mississippi yeah. River. Um, yeah. Somebody years ago asked me, like I was working at um, this National Scenic Riverway in Wisconsin, and they, it was like an icebreaker question, like what's your river? And a lot of people have like in Wisconsin, like a local river because there's a variety of rivers. Well, here there's really just like the big one, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know where the river is and it's the Mississippi River. And I, I was like, I feel like this is a cop out because I'm going to say the Mississippi River, but like, and then I explained everything I just told you and they're like, I was like, oh no, that actually makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of shaped my whole life, basically, in all of South Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I mean, I have traveled lots of different places and um, lots of different oceans, but I don't really picture myself living not on the Pacific. I, I mean, probably like you feel this connection to the Mississippi, like I feel a pretty specific connection to the Pacific Ocean, like in California. Yeah, same. Sometimes I wish I could um, divorce the politics and the things I don't like from the things I do like. Right. right. But you know, every place has its pros and cons, so. Yeah. yeah. I was interested about that scuba program you talked about because uh, I, I love the idea of like helping someone figure out their, their life in a way because it's hard to do. Um, can you, I don't know, say a little more about that? I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's, it's this, it, so it was started, um, when I had it, it was the 30th anniversary, I think when I got back. So I'm pretty sure they've, they're somewhere around like 45 years at this point. Um, and it was started by, um, so there was this, there's a dive show that it used to be more a part of called um, Our World Underwater, and it was based in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty big deal. You know, the dive industry has been, you know, had its ups and downs, um, been pr hit pretty hard, you know, every time there's a recession. And, um, but it, in sort of its heyday, I think, um, yeah, it, like people from all sorts of aspects of the diving industry, like even, you know, science and like filmmaking, they'd all gather at these dive shows regularly. And um, there were a number of people who had this recognition, like they wanted to give back in some way. And they recognized that it was a hard industry to break into if you were a young person, unless you had connections. So they had this idea about like, well, we collectively have a lot of contacts. 
So we're going to like gift these contacts to somebody and we're going to invest in a young person that we think can make a difference for the underwater world. And that can be in whatever form that they're, you know, they want to follow. Um, but hopefully they're open-minded to trying out like a bunch of different things. Um, yeah, so it was, there's people who have gone on to become like National Geographic photographers and filmmakers. There's hyperbaric medicine um, alumni. There are scientists like me. There's underwater archeologists. Um, trying to think of some other examples. People in policy, um, like environmental law, uh, all sorts of different, different things. Um, one of my uh, good friends who's, who is part of the organization also is like working in the energy sector. Um, so yeah, like a really awesome, pretty eclectic group of people. And, um, and you're, it's kind of like you're into this family when you, um, when you join, it's like a pretty tight knit community, um, which has its ups and downs, of course, as any family does. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a great thing to be a part of. And now I'm at the point where I like give back to the organization and I um, volunteer with it and I help, um, I help run the selection now for the North American scholarship. Um, so that's been a really fun thing to be a part of. Um, yeah, and it is such a rare thing. It's like, hey, here's a year to like figure out what you want to do. Um, there's, like, I don't really know of anything else that's like that. And at the time when I applied, I mean, it felt like such a long shot and I only heard about it. They didn't well, and especially that was kind of the days before it was like the internet was a thing, but like not a big thing when I was starting. So it just was hard to find out about. So I found out about it, I think, through like my dive safety officer at my university. And um, I remember when I got it, I had a phone interview and then they immediately called me back and told me that I got it. And um, I called the dive safety officer and he like, lost his mind he like could not believe that i got it like neither of us could we were just like oh my god how is this possible um so now i get to make those phone calls and like tell the people and it's just like so heartwarming and wonderful um yeah it's great oh yeah that would be amazing because i'm sure everybody feels like it's a long shot right like yeah. you did yeah um, it's, it's like a very involved application i think there's like three or four essays you have to have like four letters of recommendation you have to submit all your dive logs it's like a very involved application and I think that part of it scares people away because they're like oh I'm never it's one person it's never going to be me and it's this really like crazy application process so I think probably a lot of people like weed themselves out before we even see the people that actually end up applying probably yeah that's probably true of a lot of programs too unfortunately yeah. Um, I mean, I've certainly been guilty of uh, self-selecting myself by yeah. just not applying for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but you can't get it if you don't try. So yes, yes, that's what I try to tell people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool because, like, I, I mean, I have done some diving, not extensively, and I have loads of friends who dive, but nobody around here. And so I'm always just like fascinated to hear about all the different kinds of diving because it's you know, there's recreational diving, then there's scientific diving, and then there's like rescue diving and people who dive on the oil rigs and all these other, like, oh, there's so many different types of things you to do that are, yeah. Yeah, cave diving is yeah, another thing. 
people get really into, which I, I dabbled in a little bit during that year. Um, but that was interesting, but like a level of challenge that I ultimately decided I didn't really need to expose myself to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not that hardcore. Like I like diving and I like knowing that the surface is over the top of my head. Uh, I don't really want to be in a cave in any situation, let alone underwater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. It's a lot of, a lot of mental, uh, resilience that's required. Yeah. I read a book recently about, um, and I'm going to forget her name, but it was, it was a really interesting book. This woman is a cave diver and just like all the things she had. Yes. That's her. That. So Jill, I met her during my scholarship year. She is like one of the main reasons that I wanted to go to Antarctica. Really? Because she had just gone on this expedition to Antarctica and I met like three other people that she'd been on the expedition with during my scholarship year. And they just had this like, just insane sounding, awesome adventure and like also very difficult, but, um, and that was also the first time because they were, they dove on this, um, I think on this iceberg and were following this iceberg that had broken off. And it was like the first time also that I'd really, you know, kind of connected the dots and understood about climate change and like um, how important of a problem it was. So yeah, Jill is incredible. And I have not read her book yet, but. Okay, well, it was, a, it was really fascinating book. And a lot of things it was like, I am not a, like a strong enough person in a lot of ways, not just physically, but a lot of ways to do the things that she's describing in her book. Yeah. But she talks about diving and with that iceberg and like the things that happened and she walks through it step by step. And the whole time I was just like, you can't see my face on this podcast, but my like jaw was on the floor. She's like, Oh my God, what is happening? I was like, well, obviously she made it out because she wrote this book, but what is happening? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, I need to, I need to read it. It was a good book. Yeah, I've read a lot of books this year, so I've um, forgotten the names of a lot of the authors, but yeah, that was her. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, that's, yeah, I don't want to do any of that, but it was fun to read about. Uh, yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she's, she's done some incredible things, and such an awesome, you know, she's this wonderful voice for women like in a sport well sports may be the wrong word but in an industry that's like so dominated by men yeah i think probably both are true sport and industry yeah 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 she talks a bit about that as well in the book so y'all should all go read her book whose name yeah. i cannot remember yeah. <laughs> so bad but it was really good Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. So the person that we are talking about, her name is Jill Heinerth, and I don't know that I pronounced that right. And the she's a diver, which we obviously just talked about. And the book that we're talking about is called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. Uh, it's got four star rating on Goodreads out of five. And it's described as um, a firsthand account of exploring the Earth's final frontier, the hidden depths of our oceans and sunken caves inside of our planet. This includes this iceberg diving that she did that we talked about, all kinds of crazy cave diving, diving in all over the place. And it was just like a fascinating book to read. And I feel bad that I forgot her name while Carrie and I were talking about. So her name is Jill Heinerth and her book is called Into the Planet, My Life as a Cave Diver. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I could tell you about, so when you go for Homeward Bound, um, mm -hmm. you have to do these little talks, the symposium at sea. Did they tell you about those talks? Yeah, like we've heard of it, yeah. yeah so, so basically it's like, you know, 
I forget five minutes, maybe I think it's five minutes. I think you get five minutes and you can talk about whatever you want to talk about yourself. If you want it to be focused on your science, I mean, you're supposed to, it's basically about who you are. You talk about your science, you talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. Um, and I think originally I thought I would talk more about my science, but then once I started seeing other people's presentations and thinking about, you know, what I really wanted to talk about and what I was trying to get out of the program, I kind of decided to take a little bit of a different approach. And um, so I think I started out by talking about how, you know, when I got into, when I really made the decision to, to be a marine scientist, it was largely in response to seeing, you know, like, like I was fascinated by the ocean, but then of course also seeing like all the terrible things that were happening to the ocean and like wanting to be a voice for the ocean and really feeling like we needed so much more of that and people didn't understand what was happening. But then I think the more that I saw things and the more I went down that rabbit hole of understanding the changes in the ocean, it really made me hate people. <laughs> and I, I just, had such a hard time, I think, like, relating to people, I think, you know, especially like mainstream and consumerism and mm -hmm. uh, just even having conversations sometime with my family and feeling like I couldn't really communicate with them because they didn't understand what I understood. And mm -hmm. it was just so frustrating. And I think a lot of people who work in conservation feel that way. And so then I was in graduate school, which was awesome, because I got to meet a bunch of people who were like, fairly like minded. Um, but then for me, the big turning point was that I actually started going to Burning Man. Um, so this, you know, temporary city that pops up in the Nevada desert every year. And it's this place where people really get to explore who they wish they could be all of the time. Um, people really free themselves out there. And I don't just mean in like, you know, all the things you've heard are true, of course, but, but it's so much more than that. And people really put their guard down and they are so much more open-minded and open to experiences. And there's lots of people there who care deeply about the planet and what is happening and who are like engaged in that work, like outside of Burning Man as well. And some of the art is often really environmentally focused there. Of course, one of the principles is leave no trace, you know, is a big one and participation and like, you know, just being involved is such a big part of the ethos there. So once I started going to that, I really kind of felt like, okay, I don't hate people anymore. Like there's, there's good stuff going on out there in the world. Um, and that, I think, kind of kept me going for a little while until the 2016 election. And I, you know, just like with a lot of people just being completely devastated um, for many reasons. And I remember like I taught class um, the night of the election. I was teaching a marine conservation biology class and the class was from 6 to 8 p.m. And we reached a point where I was like, somebody was looking at the numbers coming in and we just decided we should leave class. Like we shouldn't be sitting in this room anymore. And so when we had class during the next period, you know, I wrote this whole letter to them and read it and cried and everything. And um, it's been hard, you know, and then I feel like maybe it wasn't quite as bad as we thought it was going to be. And then it got worse. Um, so I think going into Homeward Bound, I was also once again, sort of struggling with like, 
people and my relationship to them and the future and what that meant and how we were going to deal with climate change and just not it coming from a very hopeful place. And I mean, money cannot buy like how much optimism I gained from being in Homeward Bound and from meeting those women and learning about the wonderful things that are going on all around the world that I really was not clued into. And so it felt for me like Homeward Bound was my like burning man moment. Um, it was like my science burning man, my women's science burning man. Um, and it complete with dance parties, um, which, yeah, really, I mean, and you know, it's still hard, obviously, like, especially with everything that's going on now, preparing for the election again. Once again, I'm teaching marine conservation biology during an election year, so that's fun. Yeah, I, but having that community, we have like this WhatsApp group with our cohort, we're all like totally supportive of each other. And it's just these little reminders about, you know, it may be kind of crappy here in the US right now, but like there are wonderful things going on in, in you know, conservation and working towards climate solutions. And so it's really important to remember that. I appreciate you for sharing that story because it definitely resonates with me a lot. Yeah. Um, so the 2016 election is honestly what sparked this whole, I wouldn't say pivot, this whole like additional lane of traffic I've created where I have like my job and then everything else I do on this, you know, outside of yeah. my job. Um, it just came from a place of feeling hopeless and feeling like I wasn't doing enough, even though I was doing all of this great science, you know, I felt like I still needed to do more somehow. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's how I started doing all these things. And then like, while I was, you know, trying to figure out how to function and do all these other things as well, is when I heard about Homeward Bound. And so I was like, that, that's what I've been looking for. Like, I've been looking for some sort of training and connection and all these things. And um, yeah, so it was like, oh, okay, well, I'll apply for that. And I actually applied for HB4 and didn't get in. And then so I applied again yeah. for HB5. Um, I was, and so I feel like that now, like, we have, you know, this connection. I talked to you know, people, a different group of people, you know, a couple times a week, depending on the different group. And it just, it, it gives me hope. Yeah. Like there are days like today where I don't feel particularly hopeful and it's just like one of those blah pandemic days where I struggle to put on real pants and, you know, you know, everybody's sort of in the same situation. Like, you know, maybe not the same state of lockdown or whatever, but, you know, can understand and, yeah, and all sort of commiserate and share and bring each other up when we can. And it's really yeah. great. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's been good. I mean, it is definitely one of those things like you get as much out of it as you put into it. Mm -hmm. And I do kind of struggle with that. But, but I also think that one of the lessons is to figure out how much capacity you do have. And that I have also come to the point where I can accept that maybe I can't be as involved as I would want to be because there's too many things that I'm involved in. And I also want to have a life outside right. job, but yeah. Yeah. You can only handle what you can handle. And yeah. maybe I heard it described somewhere. Don't remember where some balls are glass and some balls are plastic, you know? So, and that may change. Some things may be glass one day and plastic one day. So you juggle the ones that you can and you make sure you catch the glass ones and the plastic ones fall, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I good. wish I could remember where I heard that, but. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe some days Homer bounce plastic ball. Maybe some days it's a glass ball. I don't know. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, some days it's like I'm on top, you know, I'm checking the WhatsApp group. I'm like engaged with people in my cohort. I'm, you know, thinking about the projects that they're working on. And then mm-hmm. other times it's like, oh, they have 150 unread messages in the WhatsApp. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that might be just, you know, how it goes. That's how I feel too. Some days I'm like, I can't read this today. <laughs> no matter who it was, really, homer bound or not. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you so much for doing this. It's been yeah, so nice to meet you, too. It was yeah. really, yeah, it was really nice to talk with you. And I, if you ever, yeah, want to talk HB stuff or anything, yeah. You I'm hoping when this pandemic's over, I can actually, like, travel and see friends. And some of my closest friends live in Davis now. So yes. if I'm ever out your way, I'll let you know. Yes, you know, when we can yeah. travel again. Yeah. If you're ever down this way for some reason, let me know. Yeah, I love New Orleans. Yeah, New Orleans is great. Well, again, thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Hopefully we'll be in touch. Hey, all, it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Villani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter. Um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.